Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. HIV Matters explores the current issues people living with HIV experience that impacts on their quality of life. The podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Croston, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have a long history of working in HIV care and will be joined on the podcast by leading professionals and activists in the field of HIV that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout my career. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Vive. Vive has had no input into speakers or content. Today's episode contains information and conversations that may trigger strong emotions within different people. If you need support, please contact your local care provider. Access to specific services can be found via the reliable internet search engine. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by David Mund, who is a clinical nurse specialist for mental health and HIV at Chelsea and Westminster. Thank you so much, David, for agreeing to be part of today's podcast to talk about mental health a topic that both of us are extremely passionate about. Thank you for inviting me today as well. David, I listened to a really good interview with you that you did on the radio. I found that really informative and I'm just wondering for our listeners, are you able to explain a little bit more about your role and what that involves? Yes, certainly. I suppose in a nutshell, the two words that I would use to describe what I do is facilitation and advocacy. And the first part facilitating kind of involves helping people with with HIV to access mental health care primarily, but also utilising other resources to this group of individuals that enable them to, to make progress and succeed. I mean, these can be areas to help them back in employment, for instance, uh, direct them on how to claim universal credit, disability allowance, and even address housing issues. So my approach in my role and what I do is kind of holistic in a way. And by that, I mean to provide support that looks at the whole person and not, not just their mental health needs. I mean, the support my role offers also considers the person's physical, emotional, social and spiritual well-being as well. So in summary, the holistic approach kind of focuses on the person's wellness and not just on their illness or condition. A good example of how, for instance, uh, social uh, factors and stresses uh, can have the impact on someone's mental health would be to look at, say, social reforms that are sometimes implemented by government. And a good example of this would be what was called the bedroom tax. So if, if you're a council or housing association tenant, your housing benefit would, would have been cut if you had more bedrooms than your family uh, is seen as needing. Uh, so when this was first introduced, I, I had a, a large influx of referrals with patients experiencing anxiety, depression and even suicidal thoughts because of what the impact um, of a reduction in benefits would have had and in some cases threats to move the person into different accommodation they'd lived in most of their lives. So the advocacy part of my role entails a lot of letter writing on the person's behalf, highlighting in this case the impact that reducing an individual's benefits can have on the whole person. And this would include in respect of HIV continuing good adherence to their antiretroviral medication. Again, for example, stressful and emotional life events are among some of the most common factors associated with HIV treatment adherence and typical barriers to adherence may be overshadowed by uh, poverty in some of the most disadvantaged populations of people living with HIV. So that's as kind of a nutshell of, of, uh, of my job as, as I, can, I can give really. Facilitation advocacy overall towards their mental health and well-being. Brilliant. Thanks for sharing that, David. I think as professionals, we can sometimes 
assume we know what our colleagues' roles are. So it's really great for our listeners that you've articulated the depth and breadth of your role. So you just mentioned there when we were talking about mental health and mental health problems. I'm just wondering for our listeners, based on your experience, what does it mean to have a mental health problem? And also, what do we mean by the term mental health? So mental health and mental illness are not the same thing. A mental illness refers to conditions that affect a person's thinking, feeling, mood or behaviour. And these can include, but not limited to depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Mental health reflects our overall emotional, psychological and social well-being, which can affect how we think, feel and act. So mental health has a strong impact on the way we interact with others, for instance, handle problems and make, and make decisions. So in, in many ways, uh, mental health is just like physical health everybody has it we need to take care of it so good mental health means being generally able to think feel and react in the ways that you need and want to live your life if you go through a period of poor mental health you may find that the ways you're frequently thinking feeling or acting become difficult or even impossible to cope with i like to use the analogy of a car as being your mental health and how it is looked after determines how your journey along the road will be for example will it break down at the nearest bump in the road when you hit it so maintaining your car or your mental health so to speak can help you navigate uh, the difficulties that are thrown at us in life as you journey through it so we can look at mental health in a way as not a, dis- a destination but a process so it's about how you drive not where you're going as it were That's a great analogy, David. Thank you for sharing that with me and our listeners today. I think you've mentioned about kind of mental health. And from my own experiences, we think about mental health a little bit differently now. Definitely in my world, I've become a lot more aware of mental health within the population and also this term mental ill health and lots of strategies to kind of help with our mental health. I'm just wondering from your point of view, do you think people's understanding of mental health has changed over time? Well, certainly. I mean, mental health has been transformed over over the last 70 years and certainly in the past 38 years. I've, I've been working as a nurse in both general adult nursing and psychiatry. There have been so many changes back in the 1980s, the closure of the old asylums. Uh, I, I remember as a, as a young 20-year-old, then moving them into the community the increased use of talking therapies, and they've all had a hugely positive impact on patients and mental health care and society's understanding of uh, mental health and mental illnesses. But one major change has been in the shift in society's attitudes. People are becoming more accepting of mental health problems and more supportive of people with, with issues. They're more aware of common mental disorders such as depression and anxiety. I think they're more willing to talk to health professionals and seek uh, treatment. On the other end of the spectrum, patients who've experienced childhood trauma are also more confident in talking about it and society is more aware of its potential causes and with parents, school teachers and safeguarding leads looking out for for signs of mental health issues. I'd like to also mention the, the digital world. It's really, I think, the most important innovation in mental health awareness has been easier access to information via search engines, YouTube, using talk and lectures and podcasts such as this one. And I've certainly seen this uh, develop over the last 10 years and it's helped bring mental health into the mainstream as well as access to services have been improved significantly by that. So, yes, uh, overall, it's been uh, our, our understanding of mental health has changed significantly uh, through them mediums. I think you're absolutely right. There has been an increased focus on raising awareness for mental health. There's been some high profile campaigns like Time to Change, Time to Talk. You know, we've had the royals getting behind 
thinking about the importance of mental health. And again, you've just touched on about childhood trauma and kind of raising awareness for the impact, the longer term impacts of that as well. Also as well, access to information is much better for people. And I think it's important that we we just say about getting the right information because there is a lot of unhelpful information, should I say, on the internet. Yeah, there's an addendum to that. You're right. There's one has to be very careful and directed correctly through these sources as well. But the access component of it has significantly changed um, how we access mental health care quickly in many cases so that it doesn't um, uh, become a problem which um, uh, impacts them worse. Yeah, no, definitely. I think having access is empowering, isn't it? Because I know it's been, you know, the advent of the internet and people having access to things has just made it less of a taboo subject to talk about. Absolutely. I'd just like to mention actually how important access to mental health care. Most of the research uh, in HIV care points to that as being the uh, the key thing to poor adherence to antiretrovirals. It's not, it's most of the patients who I see who have got long-standing mental health problems have no their adherence to medication is is better than the general population because they're so used to taking medication in many ways. But what the problem has been over the years is access to mental health care has been the significant driver to poor adherence because if, if they can't get access to mental health care for lots of reasons, if they're homeless, um, for instance, their uh, mental health can deteriorate for even further and then they become so unwell and become so ill that um, not only do they have to be admitted to a psychiatric unit, but they, they can and have stopped their antiretroviral treatment. So in that respect, it has a, a double whammy effect. Their poor physical health and poor mental health deteriorates. That's primarily due to poor access to mental health care. I know there's been recently the All Parliamentary Group on HIV prior to the pandemic released a report entitled The Missing Link, mm-hmm. HIV and Mental Health, where within that report it's acknowledged that mental health services, as you've just mentioned, may not have always been easy for people living with HIV to access. And again, just compounding all the things that you've mentioned. It also suggested within the report, which I will drop into the descriptions for those listeners who want to access the report, it also suggests that we no longer should provide care in silos and treating mental health and physical health separately. Mm-hmm. I know, David, we've had previous discussions around this and this other government report around no health without mental health. Also, it suggests that within the report that changes to people's lives living with HIV need to recognise this connection between physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. Alongside what you've talked about, really, these wider social determinants that impact on mental health. So, David, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this. And during your time and career, have you seen any changes in how care is delivered that would reflect this approach? It's a good question. And and I suppose I'll reflect really on on my own training. I've I've trained and worked as as a general nurse and adult nurse uh, in um, general nurse in adult nursing and psychiatry. And also I've worked also as a general nurse in uh, in the United States. And what it's offered me is a a unique view and experience of the problems of working in silos or what I say separate specialities. When we work in separate specialities, it's almost inherent that, that we create a silo that we know our stuff, you know yours, and, and uh, never the twain shall meet. 
there's a kind of a breakdown in understanding and communication between each other and the patient as a whole. So they just kind of see that problem for that in that person rather than look at the whole of, of the person. I think that's really where what I've seen as a danger, as you mentioned in um, the correcting of the silos. I mean, specialities are important, but we must not, what I call, outsource our basic skills to other specialities. And what I mean by this is, for instance, a 10 or 15 minute conversation with a patient about their mental health during a physical health consultation and vice versa as well. So better understanding of the impact that poor physical health can have on mental health and how poor mental health and our physical well-being is important if we're going to address this problem. I know some HIV services in London particularly are ahead of this, uh, this issue. And at my clinic, and they've invested money in my speciality role uh, to address mental health issues um, within the cohort of patients living with HIV. So I would, like, I would certainly like the same level of investment in mental health services in raising the awareness and, and addressing the disparities uh, in mental health care of people living with HIV as opposed to the general pop, uh, population as, as highlighted in the APPG report. So, um, yeah, I think the HIV service is ahead of the game on this one. But if we need to invest the money in mental health services to look at the problem uh, and raise their awareness of the, the interface between mental health and, and HIV and the impact that it can have on both mental health and physical health. Thank you. Prior to today's podcast, I've had the pleasure of working with you on a project. And during that, we talked about the importance of language within mental health and how different terminology used in mental health can be confusing. Or often when we're thinking about different terms, we try our best. And again, we've talked a lot on the HIV Matters podcast about terminology and the impact it can have. I'm just wondering, would you be able to share your thoughts on language in mental health, please? Mm, yeah, certainly. Despite the progress we have made in the past decade or so, the stigma associated with uh, mental health or illness still exists in, in our community. I mean, the way we talk about mental illness and the things we express publicly through media, social media, in our homes and in our workplace can, can make a difference. So certain ways of talking about mental illness can, can alienate members of the community sensationalize the issue i'll give you a couple of examples it's important that people say a person is living with or as a diagnosis of mental illness as opposed to as a mental patient lunatic psycho deranged mad these kind of words and the reason for that is certain language can sensationalize mental illness and, and reinforce stigma another example would be it would be better to say a person is being treated for or someone with mental illness rather than uh, the person suffering from or is affected with the mental illness and again the important terminology suggests a lack of quality of life for the people with mental illness and the third good example would be a person that you would rather i would rather say a person has a diagnosis of or is being treated for schizophrenia rather than a person is a schizophrenic or an anorexic and the reason for that is labeling a person by their mental illness it's important that they don't identify themselves by their condition so language can shape how we see the world the words we choose and the meanings we attach to them can influence our feelings, attitudes and, and beliefs. So our language choices do have a, a powerful effect on, on how we view mental health and, and people living with mental health conditions. And as a, a famous speaker on mental health called Robin Sharma, he said words can inspire and words can destroy. So choose yours well. And I found that incredibly helpful sometimes in, uh, in saying to people, choose your words carefully because they can destroy a person's life.
that is a real powerful reminder of just the importance of language definitely thinking about within HIV care and also within mental health. We've talked about mental health and what it means for people living with HIV in different aspects throughout our podcast series. I'm going to give you a magic wand now, David. So it's time for that magic wand question. I really wish we had the power at HIV Matters to give these magic wands out. So if time, money and resources were not an issue, how would you like to see mental health services being implemented into HIV care? I love questions like this. I suppose investment from the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, it used to be called, I think, previously the Public Health England. So I'd like uh, more roles like mine, really, to be implemented in all HIV services, not just in England, but across the UK. At present, my role's funded internally from finances given to clinics, and no specific funding is available. So it's a bit of tweaking around the services. And I think really that if I was, yeah, the magic wand funding for my role to, uh, to be in every service, that would have knock-on effect really. I work very closely with mental health services and it gives me a fantastic opportunity to educate and raise the awareness of HIV. So it's a kind of a drip effect really that it infiltrates into the mental health services and, and hopefully improves mental health care. You mentioned at the start you were dual qualified to so a general nurse and then trained to be a mental health nurse. As you know, I'm an educator and constantly keeping my eye on the horizon and thinking about how care will look like as time moves on. I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts about nurses leaving their training with a dual award as in mental health and adult nursing? What are your thoughts? That's a brilliant question. Thank you for putting me on the spot. It makes me it helps, it gets me to think very quickly on my feet. But this, this is interesting that you mentioned. This has been something I've thought about and pondered over the years. Uh, I come from a, a different nursing background where funding, I was going to training without having to pay for it. It was uh, state funding at the time. So in that respect, it was I was very fortunate. And also living in the United States was really uh, an eye-opener. I'll give you an example. In the United States, a nurse is a nurse is a nurse. They don't go into specialities until after they train. So it's a bit like doctors, they're generalists. So they go into their careers um, having a really good global view of, of the patient, the mental health, uh, physical health. And unfortunately, the European model creates these silos where we are kind of blinkered in a way to other specialities. We, it's difficult to join the dots up. And I've worked with general nurses who are very fearful in some respects of mental health patients when they're managing them and vice versa, dealing and working with uh, nurses who work in the field of men, uh, mental health are almost petrified uh, by the physical aspect of the patient. I mean, it's particularly in HIV, my goodness, it was a huge learning curve for me. The learning about the medical aspect of HIV, very, very complex. And the words that they use, my goodness me, you, you kind of have to be very brave to, to enter either, each, either of these specialties, really, with, with the understanding that there's a big learning curve. And that's been a problem I think, it, again, if, if I could have a second wish on the magic wand, it would be that, and this is controversial, of course, uh, we get rid of the silo nursing model and create a generalist nursing model 
in education. That's only my own thoughts because I've, I've, as I said, I haven't just worked in Europe, I've worked in North America and and that's the approach they have. So patients have a very different um, care model there. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing those thoughts with me. And I, it's one of those circular conversations I have with myself, you know, we need to start producing nurses that are going to meet the future needs of the healthcare population and mm. we've we've talked about the inseparable link between physical and mental health mm. so do we need to restart looking at the way we train and i think yeah that's a, a bigger conversation but definitely one we can be part of as as it moves forward Absolutely, yeah. now this is the part of the show that i enjoy we ask you some questions in an attempt to get to know you. For our listeners, can you name something, David, that brings you joy? Absolutely. Uh, My gardening and um, seeing my daffodils bloom in uh, early spring brings me joy. A sign of better weather and longer days. I love spring. It's my favourite season. I'm looking out of the garden now and just seeing the first shoots of the daffodils coming up. So I look forward to them. It's always a wonderful time for me. It's that hope of something different happening. Absolutely. Thank you. So can you share with us a book that you may have read recently? Certainly. I mean, this this is a brilliant book. And it's it's um it's called All All the Young Men. It's a heart-wrenching book in many ways. It's a book that's written by a lady called Ruth Coker Burks. And uh, she was a young single mother in um, Hot Springs, Arkansas, in the United States, who cared for people with AIDS. It's a true story. Uh, when no one else um, would in the 1980s and uh, 1980s and 1990s. And I, I have um, very uh, real memories of this as well in the 1980s. I started my career in 1983 and, and nursed AIDS patients where little or nothing was known about the, the, the disease at that time. And in this book, um, with no medical background, um, Ruth single-handedly created a network of care and saw to the final resting places of roughly about a thousand men abandoned by families and neglected by medical professions in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, it's a lovely heart-wrenching book, as I said. I mean, she defied local pastors and the medical community to store rare medications for her most urgent patients and teach and taught sex education to drag queens after hours at secret bars. I mean, she was emboldened by the weight of their collective pain, in which she fervently advocated for their safety and visibility as well. And she ultimately advised um, Bill Clinton on the national HIV crisis, and which, which led on to the Ryan White programme. Again, living in the United States, uh, I, I became very familiar with the Ryan White program, which was a federal uh, federal funding for um, which was written into law, which allowed specific uh, money to be allocated to HIV care, and within that um, was was mental health care funding as well. And it's a remarkable book. I mean, she kept her story secret for many years, kind of fearful of repercussions within her within her uh, uh, conservative community because she was um, Christian. Um, but at the time, she, uh, it was more important than ever to kind of stand up for those who, who, um, who, who couldn't really for lots of reasons because they were stigmatised uh, around the, um, the AIDS epidemic. So that, that's a brilliant book and I, I do recommend um, people read it. It's called All the Young Men by Ruth Coker Burks. I'm definitely adding that to my cart after we've finished off today in our podcast. I will just put the link in the description for those listeners who would like to check out that recommendation. 
So finally, we, we're in a world where we've got access to all kinds of media, um, social media, books, podcasts. I'm just wondering, have you listened to or watched anything recently that may have surprised you or made you think a little bit differently? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, I'm sure a lot of the viewers have seen this. Uh, it's a movie called Don't Look Up. It's some big um, actors in it, Jennifer Lawrence, who played in the strongly grad student, and the professor, Leonardo DiCaprio, played that, making this, this kind of astounding discovery of a comet orbiting within the solar system. And the problem was it's on a direct collision course with Earth. And uh, the movie really, I mean, it was brilliant. The, the problem, obviously, the other problem was that nobody really seemed to care. It, uh, it turns out that warning mankind about a planet killer the size of Mount Everest was an inconvenient fact uh, to kind of navigate. So the actors in it, they all embark on this media tour that takes them from the office of a very indifferent uh, president to the airwaves of uh, national TV, etc. And with only six months until the comet makes an impact, managing the kind of the 24-hour news cycle and gaining the attention of social media, obsessed public um, before it was too late, uh, it proved kind of shockingly comical. So uh, what would it take to get the world to just look up, you know, at the sky? So it was a brilliant uh, moving it really made me think about some of the problems that we have really uh, today and getting people to sort of look at the more serious issues in life and, and address them before it's probably too late yeah, thank you for sharing that david i've also watched that film and it is a great way just to kind of catch yourself mm -hmm. and think yeah how are we going to tackle some of these big issues if we yeah. don't look up and start to take notice mm -hmm. very cleverly done in a light-hearted way as well Definitely. I loved the way they added the humour in and it was just, it was amazing. So feel free to check that movie out on Netflix, I believe. Again, I will put the, the recommendation in the description. So thank you so much, David, for joining me today on the HIV Matters podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again for, for inviting me. I would like to thank today's guest for joining me on HIV Matters. If you have any suggestions for guests you would like to see on the podcast, or if you fancy joining me on the show, please contact me at michelle.croston at nottingham.ac.uk. Throughout series one, our amazing guests have been sharing their favourite books with us. If you're anything like me, you'll have been busy trying to find these books in a variety of different bookstores. HIV Matters has teamed up with ukbookshop.org to create our own virtual bookstore which is absolutely amazing. Because not only do we get to find the books that have been mentioned with ease, we also get to support local bookshops when ordering our books. If you'd like to learn more about the HIV Matters bookstore, then please click the link below for more information. Also at HIV Matters, we're really interested in hearing your views on different books that you've been reading. So please contact the show. How to contact the show is in the description below. If you'd like to find out more about Nivna, head over to their website at www.nivna.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to HIV Matters if you haven't already done so. HIV Matters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Vive. Vive has had no input into speakers or content. Today's podcast was edited by Daniel Heggie. A special thank you from all the team at HIV Matters. Until next time, thank you for listening and together we can make a difference.